Well, if you would, please open up your Bibles to Matthew 19, 1 to 12. Again, that's Matthew 19, 1 to 12. And if you don't mind, I'd like to begin my message by reading today's passage together. Again, it's Matthew 19, 1 to 12. As you guys know, we've taken a few weeks off uh, to talk about body life in the church, a few weeks away from Matthew, our regular exposition of Matthew. And uh, we had another week off last week as we considered the resurrection, but this week we're going to be returning to this verse-by-verse look at Matthew. And we're on Matthew 19, 1 to 12. Matthew says this, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been made, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. A couple of years ago I was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and as I was about to come up on the section of the sermon that deals with divorce or remarriage, one of the elders came to me and expressed his concern that the church's position on divorce and remarriage, as stated in our bylaws, did not reflect the Scripture's position on the issue. In case you're wondering, our bylaws state that the Bible allows divorce under two circumstances. The first is, quote, when a professing believer is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever wants a divorce. That's one instance when it's allowed, when an unbeliever seeks to be divorced. The other is, quote, when a couple is married and one of the partners unrepentantly commits immorality, then the innocent partner may seek a divorce. Uh, The bylaws then go on to state that remarriage is likewise permissible either following the death of a spouse or following a biblical divorce. The issue raised at this time was whether the Bible does in fact allow for divorce in the instance of immorality and whether the Bible ever allows for remarriage after a divorce. In other words, the question being raised was whether or not the Bible only allows for divorce when uh, an unbeliever requests it, and whether or not the divorced spouse is allowed to remarry even in that instance. Uh, I was given some materials to look over which explain what's called the uh, permanence view of marriage. As the title implies, the adherents to that position believe that marriage is an indissoluble institution and that one must remain uh, unmarried even after divorce. And as I read through that material, part of what 
they had to say seemed convincing. I was never on board, just so you know, I was never on board with the whole never remarriage part of that argument. But the evidence to argue that the Bible did not allow for divorce in the case of immorality or adultery, it was pretty strong. So initially I I delayed preaching on the passage for a few weeks until I could uh, look at the matter a little bit further. The elders and I met together and we discussed the merit of the position. And At the time, we agreed that there was no exception in Scripture for divorce in the case of adultery. Now, we still didn't agree on the remarriage side of that discussion. And so, rather than update the bylaws to reflect our change in that, our position, we decided to keep talking this issue out until we could come to full agreement on the matter. Uh, most of you weren't here then, uh, but I went ahead and preached the elders' position on the issue, and as I preached, I noted that this position was not reflected by our bylaws, but that the elders agreed with what I was saying, and that we would discuss the matter with the congregation further once our position on the issue was settled and we knew what sort of changes we wanted to make to the bylaws. Well, that was two and a half years ago. And as some of you know, we never got back to you. Uh, That's not because we forgot. It's just because there were other issues to address early on in the stages of our church plant. Uh, Issues that we thought were more pressing. That's the unfortunate reality of things. You often don't have time to address every important issue uh, that you come across, so you have to prioritize your order of attack. Well, if you recall, this past fall, I announced to our congregation that one of the elders' goals for this year was to iron out some of the wrinkles in our bylaws. We addressed one of those wrinkles back in December when we updated our position on the relationship between baptism and church membership. And now, finally, we're at the point where we can fix this divorce and remarriage dilemma. A couple of months back, I saw Matthew 19 coming up on the horizon. I realized this is the perfect opportunity for us to finally settle this issue. So I went to Clint. I said, let's get this ironed out. And we did. And I'm happy to announce that we've landed. And over the next two weeks, I'm going to explain to you what our position is. And I have to say, I'm really very happy that we waited a couple of years before making any changes to the bylaws. Because if we had finalized our decision a couple of years ago, I think we would have been wrong. Uh, Regardless of how we would have landed on the remarriage issue, we would have said then that there is only one permissible reason for divorce, and that's when you're married to an unbeliever and they seek a divorce. Every other reason we would have said is invalid, including unrepentant sexual immorality. I don't know if you ever get frustrated at the speed at which the elders move here. Uh, To be honest, there are probably moments where I think we seem a lot like the Ents from the Lord of the Rings. Uh, We tend to implement change very slowly and very deliberately. Um, But I hope you understand this is why. This is the payoff. The benefit is that we don't go and hastily implement changes that then only have to be overturned later once more evidence comes to light. And that really matters when you're dealing with something as important as divorce and remarriage. You don't want to give a set of counsel on this issue only to have to go back and say later, oops, sorry, I was wrong, my bad. Uh, There's a lot at stake here. And so we we really cannot do that on this issue. Now, I should probably clarify up front, I'm going to explain uh, again our new position, or not new position, but our updated position. 
uh, today. And I should probably clarify up front that much of what I preached on a couple of years ago still applies. Uh, That material that I read on the permanence position, again, it did have some really good points, and it's helped sharpen our position on this issue. So in case you're wondering, it's not as if I'm just tossing out everything that was said a couple of years ago. If you were to go back and listen to that, those couple of messages that I gave then, a lot of what I said then still applies. But our understanding of this issue has been refined on a couple of key points, and those points have had a pretty significant impact on our final conclusion. So once again, over the next two weeks, I want to explain our updated position, and I'm going to do that with this passage in Matthew that we read just a moment ago, Matthew 19, 1-12. Now, if you notice, Matthew 19, 1-12 includes a statement, a statement known as the exception clause. You see it there in verse 9, where Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. That's where the debate is. It's over the meaning of this phrase, except for sexual immorality. It's this Greek word, porneia. And there's kind of a debate about what's the meaning of that word and how does that come to bear on this discussion. Jesus makes a similar statement in Matthew 5, 31-32, when He says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let her give him a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, again, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, When I preached on that passage a couple of years ago, I argued that the exceptions in these passages are not really exceptions. I said that Jesus was addressing a situation that was very specific to Jewish culture, that he was talking about sexual immorality that occurred during the engagement period before the marriage occurred. If you're not aware, Jewish culture required that a certificate of divorce be issued even if an engagement was broken off before the marriage had had been consummated, I said that Jesus was addressing that circumstance, a, quote, divorce, before marriage occurred, not after. After marriage, there is no exception. Even in instances of immorality, a person must remain married. Now, I'm not going to rehash all my arguments for that position. Just know that I now reject that position, the the betrothal-only position. And next week, I'm going to explain to you what my position is now and why. And just so you know, I am pretty settled now on this one. Even when I preached it the first time, I was kind of like this. I had questions. I'm going, but I, have to, I still have to preach the passage, but we've got to get some of these other questions sorted out. That's not the case here. Kind of all my questions I had before have been answered now. Um, this is kind of settled, it seems. And it uh, would probably take quite a bit to convince otherwise. So we're going to talk about that next week. But before we get into that, I want to take a week to briefly explain the point of this passage. Because... I think that will help clarify what Jesus is doing with the exception clause. Again, this passage contains the exception clause, but as I think you'll see in just a moment, that's not really the point of the passage. So before we get there, before we get to the exception clause, let's take a look at the main point of this passage first. And then once we get that under our belts, I'll spend some time next week explaining what I think Jesus is doing with this clause and how it impacts our understanding of divorce and remarriage. Let's get started by reading the passage once again. Uh, Matthew 19, 1-12. Let's just familiarize ourselves with what's here. Matthew says this, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him and He healed them there. And Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him, 
by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone, who can, uh, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So for the past several months, we were in a section of Matthew I entitled Setting the Cornerstone. And you'll recall that I named the section this because in that section, Jesus lays the foundation for his church. It had become apparent to Jesus that Israel was not going to accept his call to repentance. And so he starts establishing the institution that will serve as the witness to his gospel until his return. And I'm talking, of course, about the church. And what we saw was that Jesus identified the apostles as the foundation for this new group of people in that section. They would be the ones who would carry on uh, his mission after his death. And from that tiny seed would grow this immense group of witnesses, which would one day even stretch across the entire earth. That's where we've been for the past few months. We've watched Jesus solidify the faith of this foundational group of witnesses as he began to look increasingly toward the cross. You'll recall that it was after Peter's declaration of faith in Matthew 16 that Jesus began to reveal his suffering and death and resurrection for the first time. Jesus had taken his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi, which was this city way up north in Galilee, in this kind of geographical and symbolic climax to his ministry. And then after that declaration, Jesus begins to descend back down into Galilee before moving on then to Jerusalem. That's really where we're at now. Ever since Matthew 16, this is where Jesus is headed. He's going to the cross. Today we're entering into a new section of Matthew's Gospel. The Gospel of Matthew is divided up by these extended discourses where there's a narrative section that develops a particular theme which then climaxes with Jesus' instruction on that theme. We've already covered Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7. to We've covered His instruction on mission in Matthew 10, the parables of Matthew 13, and His instruction on church life in Matthew 18. Each of these sections ends with some variation of the statement when He finished these sayings. And that's what we find here in Matthew 19, 1. It starts now when Jesus had finished these sayings. So we're entering into this new section of Matthew. And in a couple of weeks, I'll spend some time really trying to give a proper introduction to what's going on in these upcoming chapters, what Jesus is going to do at this stage of His ministry. But suffice to say for the moment that His focus is still on the disciples. 
We're going to see this convergence of issues take place as Jesus gets nearer and nearer to the cross. The the Pharisees' hostility, for instance, is going to reach its peak. So we're going to see Jesus respond to their hostility on the one hand, and he's going to handle their challenges, rebuke their unbelief. But while he's doing this, he's still going to teach and prepare his disciples. So like, historically, there's multiple themes taking place at this stage of Jesus' ministry. Multiple topics would have been developed as Jesus faced this increasing hostility. Because you have all these groups kind of converging on Jesus simultaneously with their different opinions of Him. And and Jesus is going to handle these groups differently in His encounters with them. And while Matthew can't ignore the historical existence of these other events, it will be apparent that his focus at this stage is on Jesus' interaction with his disciples in particular. That's what Matthew's interested in. He explores the kind of impact that these last few months, perhaps even the last few weeks of Jesus' ministry was to have on his disciples. So Matthew discusses the hostility Jesus encountered, even in the midst, but even in the midst of that, he keeps his focus on the implications of these events for the disciples. In other words, this section of the gospel is didactic. It's meant to instruct. It focuses less on who Jesus is and more on how his disciples are to live after the cross. So this is how we need to read this portion of the gospel. Jesus is still readying for his departure. And as he does this, he continues to prepare his disciples for life in a post-resurrection world. The climax of this section, by the way, the teaching part, that's going to be the Olivet Discourse. And if you're not familiar with the Olivet Discourse, that's where Jesus talks about the details surrounding His return. I think you can get the picture. We're talking about life now between resurrection and return. It's a section where Jesus not only focuses on what the disciples should do in light of His coming return, but even on what kind of priorities and values they should hold. The prospect of the coming kingdom is supposed to dramatically alter the disciples' outlook on on life in the interlude between the resurrection and the return. It should change their understanding of the things that really matter, what things are really important in life. In this sense, kingdom values are a major theme of this section. How does Christ's imminent return, the fact that He could come back tomorrow, how does that affect the way we live now? That's one of the major themes of this coming section. And you see this very idea being played out here in Matthew 19, 1-12. In this passage, Jesus is addressing two different questions. The first comes from the Pharisees. And they come to Jesus seeking to test Him, verse 3. There's the hostility theme emerging. We'll discuss this a little more next week, but according to John's Gospel, Jesus has actually already visited Jerusalem once before the events that we see here in Matthew 19. During during that visit, Jesus has some pretty serious encounters with the religious leaders. He's effectively stirred up the hornet's nest with some things that he said there in Jerusalem as he tried to call the people of Jerusalem to repentance. Now Jesus is in the region of Perea. This is a section of Israel that's directly across the Jordan from Jericho. So Jesus departed from Jerusalem after his initial visit there. He's withdrawn from the trouble there, but trouble has followed him. 
Perea, by the way, was a section of Israel ruled by Herod Antipas. That's the same Herod that ruled in Galilee, and the same Herod who beheaded John the Baptist at the behest of his wife Herodias. Herodias, you will, you will recall, wanted John the Baptist to be put to death because John, who, by the way, baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, which, on the, which was on the border of Judea and Perea, John had told Herod, the ruler of Perea, that it was not lawful for him to be married to Herodias, since Herodias had actually been married to Antipas' brother, Philip. She divorced him, though, and she remarried his brother, Herod Antipas. So the Pharisees come up to Jesus in the region of Perea, and they say to Jesus, So Jesus, about divorce, what do you think? Is it lawful? And you can see what they're trying to do here. Jesus' position on divorce is already known. He preached it probably repeatedly while he was up in Galilee. Luke 16 tells us that he already stated his position on it once while he was here in Perea. They know what Jesus is going to say. But they want him to say it again here in Perea. So that word can spread around. And from their perspective, hopefully, Jesus meet a fate akin to John's. So that's one question that's being addressed here. Is divorce permissible? The second comes in verse 10. And it's really less of a question than it is a declaration. In verses 3 to 9, Jesus answers the Pharisees' question. He essentially tells them that, generally speaking, divorce is not permissible. And the reason is because God originally designed marriage to be a permanent institution. The disciples hear this, and they say, verse 10, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And guess what Jesus says? He basically agrees. He says in verse 11, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Basically, he says, you're right, but not everyone can accept this. And then he explains further in verse verse 12, saying, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And he concludes, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Basically, Jesus endorses the idea that we now refer to as the gift of singleness. And you know, Jesus himself never married. There were men like Paul, who likewise never married. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul explains the reason why he never married was because he understood that marriage prevented a man or woman from giving their full attention to Christ. And Paul didn't want that. He wanted to be fully devoted to Christ. And so Paul encouraged those who were unmarried to remain so, if they could, to mimic him and devote themselves wholly to the gospel. He said it was better to do this though he acknowledged that it wasn't a lifestyle that everyone could live. If you're wondering where Paul drew this concept from, it's right here in Matthew 19. Jesus himself endorsed this idea. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is just expounding on what Jesus told the disciples here in Matthew 19. And the reason why that's significant is because it helps us understand what Jesus is saying here. The point of this passage really is the lesson to the disciples in verses 10 to 12. 
Jesus uses this conflict to explain the imminence of the coming kingdom and the importance of this kingdom means that if possible, it is better for a disciple not to marry so they can devote themselves wholly to the work of expanding God's kingdom. That's the very point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 7, 25-31, when he says this. I'll just read this now. If you want to, go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to look at that passage in a minute here. But this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 25-31. He says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman, married, a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as those who are not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. That's the point that Matthew is driving at in this passage. This passage isn't driving at the permissibility of divorce primarily. It's driving at the priority of the kingdom over marriage, even to the degree that one should remain single if possible in order to devote themselves to the work of the kingdom. So then, why does Matthew even include this whole section on divorce if that's not really the point? And I'd say the reason is because of the implication of what Jesus is saying in verses 10 to 12. If you would, again, turn to 1 Corinthians 7. If you haven't done that already, look at 1 Corinthians 7. We've already talked quite a bit about 1 Corinthians 7. Now I want to show you something from this passage that I think is going to shed a whole lot of light on this whole marriage issue. One of the passages that is often brought up in this divorce debate is 1 Corinthians 7, 10-11. In this passage, Paul says this, he says, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. People often turn to this passage to discuss whether or not divorce is permissible. And if you notice, there is no exception clause here. And so they'll say, see, divorce is not permissible. Paul says we're supposed to remain married. This thought is then amplified by verse 39, where Paul says a wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married um, to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Now, I want you to think again about what Paul is talking about in this chapter. Is Paul, here in 1 Corinthians 7, is Paul even really talking about the permissibility of divorce? The permissibility of divorce. Look again, for instance, at the verses that surround verse 39. Paul gives instructions to the betrothed, uh, starting back in verse 25, And Paul concludes that section by saying in verse 38, So then he who marries his betrothed does well, 
and he who refrains from marriage, even better. And then Paul says in relation to the betrothed woman in verse 39, if you get married, you're bound. But then he says in verse 40, yet in my judgment she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of the Lord. Look at how Paul opens up this chapter. He says in verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Like there was this idea going around among the Corinthians that it is better not to be physically intimate at all. And so Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 7 to deal with that issue. He starts in verse 2 by saying, But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He starts by saying, listen guys, not everyone can do this. And this launches into this discussion of marriage. In verses 6 to 9, he says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. He says, look, it's good to be single, but if you can't be single because of temptation, then marry. And why is it better to remain single? Paul answers later on in verses 32 to 35 when he says, again, I I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's why Paul takes this position. Singleness allows for a person to stay wholly devoted to Christ. So in verses 6 to 9, Paul says it's better to remain single, but not if it's going to lead you into temptation. To use the language of what we've been using in our Sunday school ethics class, singleness, Paul would say, is not morally obligatory, Right? It's morally supererogatory, okay? And if you're not in the Sunday school class, it's probably just confusing. But it's, it's about going above and beyond, he's saying. It's not obligatory to be single. It's going above and beyond. And it's within that context that Paul says in verse 10, Now to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, stay married. Can you see what's starting to happen here? Can you see what Paul is driving at in verse 10? His point is less about whether or not divorce is permitted and more about whether it is required or even preferable. He's talking about how much better it is to be freed of a spouse, to be wholly devoted to Christ, and this raises the question, so what if I'm married? Should I go ahead and divorce my spouse? And Paul says, no. No, Jesus says, stay married. That's his point with the betrothed at the end of this chapter too. He says, you're not wrong to get married, but understand, if you do, get married, you have to remain married because marriage is designed to be permanent. And this is why Matthew would include this conflict with the Pharisees when the point that he really wants to bring out is verses 10 to 12 where the disciples say, so it's better not to marry, and Jesus says, true. True. There are eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven, but not everyone can accept this. So let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. 
Matthew includes this because the implication of this concept could be interpreted to mean, so divorce your spouse. It's better not to be married, so if you are, divorce. Understand, Matthew is the only gospel writer who includes this statement about eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. And the reason why he includes it is because he's interested in exploring kingdom values in this section of the gospel. He's exploring how a disciple should live, considering that the Messiah has come and is returning soon. Again, the climax of this section is the Olivet Discourse. That's where this is going. Jesus taught on this subject as he was prepared to die. And Matthew is bringing what Jesus said on this issue to the fore in this part of his gospel. How should the disciple live, considering that the Messiah is coming back soon? I think what Matthew wants to bring out is this idea that Paul expounds on in 1 Corinthians 7, that the nearness of Christ's kingdom means that it is better not to be tied up in marriage if it is possible. But what he realizes is that some are going to interpret this principle to mean that the married Christian should get a divorce. They come to Christ, they're a new creation, but they're tied to this spouse. In fact, some of these spouses are even unbelieving spouses. Of course, some aren't. Some are believing. But given the import of this new identity, some Christians are tempted to think that they should probably divorce their spouse in order to devote themselves more wholly to Christ. So Matthew includes the setting of this statement in his gospel in order to make it crystal clear that's not what Jesus wants. And why not? Well, because marriage was designed to be permanent. You understand, when Paul starts saying in 1 Corinthians 7, to the married I give this this charge, and then he clarifies, he says, not I, but the Lord. And then he says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. You understand, when he says that, he's not implying that one command is inspired and the other isn't. He's saying, Jesus gave direct instructions on those who are married in this situation. Don't get divorced. And he says, now Jesus didn't give direct instructions about those who are not married. But I, I, Paul, say to them, do you know where those direct instructions are coming from? I mean, as Paul talks about it being better not to be married, but to stay married if you are, you know where that's coming from? They come from the events that are taking place in Matthew 19. Jesus spoke directly about this issue. That's what Matthew 19 is about, primarily. And Paul references that teaching when he gets around to explaining how to approach marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, why does this all matter? What impact does this have on our understanding of the exception clause? Again, we're not going to get into the exception clause this week. It'll be next week. But but what does this understanding of the context of the passage, how does this affect the way that we deal with the exception clause? And I would answer that question in two parts. First, this matters because it shows us that Jesus' answer to the Pharisees was not intended to be a comprehensive explanation of divorce and remarriage. This is really important. Matthew 19 is not the final word on divorce. 
Yes, Jesus does answer the Pharisees' question on the permissibility of divorce in this passage. That's the question that the Pharisees come with. They want to know, is it okay? And Jesus answers that question. But what we see in Paul's discussion of these events is that this wasn't the final word on marriage. Paul has a lot more to add to this instruction than what Jesus said in this passage. This matters because I think a lot of times we read the Bible kind of like an instruction manual. And we assume that when Jesus says something like, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, then he's issuing the definitive word on the matter. But that's not what Jesus is always doing. Just recently in Matthew, we've seen that Jesus said some, uh, sometimes said things like, you know, truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. And we'll read that and we'll say, well, you have to qualify that statement with what Jesus says elsewhere. We'll do the same thing when Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We'll say, well, he doesn't mean actual literal hate there. And we'll do that because we understand that Jesus will make other statements elsewhere that qualify these types of statements, and so we can't read them wooden literally. In other words, we often, ta- we often give Jesus leeway to make statements without expecting him to spell out every single exception and qualification. And this is normal. We ourselves often make general statements without qualifying everything that we could say about it, because that would be weird. Like if someone were to ask you, hey, do you want to come over for dinner this Friday? You don't say, yeah, sure, you know, unless I get in a car accident on the way over or something like that. You say, yes. Your level of precision in that statement is sufficient to be understood, and so everyone just rolls with that. I do this pretty much every week, actually, by the way, when I preach. Almost every Sunday, I make statements from the pulpit that could be qualified, but I don't do it in the sermon because it would take away from the force of the idea I'm trying to get across. Now, if you've come very often on Sunday night, then you'll know that I'll balance out a lot of these statements when we start getting more detailed, when we start to think about the issue more deeply. I don't do that during the sermon because I don't want to soften the core point of the message. But once we start talking about specifics, then I'll balance the discussion. Jesus will often do the same thing. Not every statement that He makes is intended to be a full-blown, systematic statement on the issue he's addressing. He's not always intending to be that precise. Now, granted, I think Jesus is being fairly precise here in his answer to the Pharisees. I mean, there's a reason why he throws the exception clause in, right? But understand, sometimes people will look at some of the other statements that Jesus makes on divorce, and they'll think, well, if Jesus didn't include the exception clause there, then that must mean there's no exception. For example, in Luke 16, 18, Jesus simply says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There's no exception. And some will read that and say, see, no exception. So when Jesus makes an exception, it must, be, it must not be an actual exception. Otherwise, he'd say it every time. And that's not the case. Without expounding on Luke 16, 18 here, I can say definitively that the reason why Jesus doesn't bring out the exception there was because if he did, it would totally destroy the force of the point that he's trying to make there. So we have to understand this. Jesus didn't deliver an instruction manual for these things in his ministry. 
He spoke in real time, applying the, con- the Scripture in context to the situations he was facing, and this meant that he didn't always intend to explain concepts with laser precision. In fact, while I think Jesus is being somewhat precise here in Matthew 19, by the time we're done, I think you'll see, even here, he isn't saying everything that there is to say on this issue. The exception, properly understood, actually opens up a wider set of principles to consider when it comes to marriage and divorce, some, some of which Jesus never directly addressed. And this makes sense. I mean, if you stop to think about it, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that it's okay to divorce your unbelieving spouse if they seek out the divorce. So even though Jesus makes this exception here in Matthew 19, it would seem that it was not the only exception. Jesus isn't intending to be comprehensive. He's addressing the permissibility of a particular concept. And again, I'll explain what that concept is next week. Point is, if we're going to interpret Jesus' teaching on this issue properly, then we have to keep this in mind. We can't just take one passage or another and try to make it the definitive word on divorce. In fact, if you notice, that's the exact mistake that the Pharisees were making in their understanding of divorce. Again, we'll get into this a little bit more next week when we take a closer look at the first half of this passage. But the Pharisees were taking their position on divorce from what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 24. They took a single legal prescription that Moses issued and and a prescription that was actually addressing how to handle remarriage, actually, not divorce, by the way. And, And they built their whole understanding of divorce off of that passage. Jesus, though, for his part, he goes back to Genesis 1 to 2 in order to explain that legal prescription. He doesn't take his understanding of divorce from a single command in Scripture. Instead, he starts with a theological understanding of marriage, and then he interprets the command in light of that theological principle. And that's what we need to do as well. If we're going to understand what Jesus is saying in this passage about the permissibility of divorce, then we must take a step back first and explore the theological principles that frame this concept. We have to explore the theological principles that prompt him to make this exception. And this leads us to the second reason why the context of this passage matters. Again, I said there are two reasons why it's important to understand the context for the exception clause. The first is that it helps us realize that Jesus' instruction here is not intended to be comprehensive. The second is that it outlines for us, at least in part, what this bigger theological principle really is. Stop and think about what Jesus says here in verses 10 to 12. He says that it is better for the Christian to be unmarried, if possible, than to be married. He says, in a sense, and I'm going to qualify this, he says, in a sense, that singleness is superior to marriage. You realize that? I know that makes us uncomfortable, right? In fact, while I was studying this passage, I came across one commentator who went out of his way to say, now neither Jesus here nor Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is is saying that celibacy is preferred or is a higher calling. The only point is that it is a valid calling and should be considered by disciples who serve the kingdom. But that's not what Jesus says here, is it? He doesn't say that singleness is a valid calling. He says it's preferred. You can't escape that. The disciples say, if this is so, then it's better not to be married. And Jesus doesn't say, 
Well, I mean, not exactly, but it is a legitimate route to take. No, he says not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. He basically affirms their declaration as a given and says, but not everyone can accept that. Jesus does say that singleness is preferred. And it's not just him that says it. Paul says it too. Listen, Paul doesn't say, so then, you know, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage does well too. As if both were equal options. No, he says, and I'm quoting here, he says, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. 1 Corinthians 7.38. There's just no way you can escape this. The New Testament tilts in favor of singleness. And Paul explains why. He says the one who is unmarried is able to devote themselves wholly to Christ. And that's important, by the way. Singleness isn't better. Please hear me clearly here. Don't misunderstand me. Singleness isn't better in the sense of more righteous. Paul isn't trying to say that those who are single are better Christians than married people. And he's not trying to say that God is more pleased with those who are single because of their extreme devotion to God or something like that. Understand, there's no merit in singleness. No, Paul is saying it is better from a mission perspective. The one who is single is able to devote themselves wholly to this mission and given the nearness of Christ's return, that is better. It's better functionally, not spiritually, if that makes any sense. We have this mission in front of us and that we're all to be working on and it's easier to be focused in on that mission if you're single. Singleness is better in that sense. And I think that's probably the point that that commentator was trying to drive at when he said that they're all kind of equally valid. There's, there's no spiritual merit in singleness. And I would agree with that. So again, marriage isn't bad. It's not a sin to be married. But even still, both Jesus and Paul indicate that where we're at in redemptive history, it's better to be focused on the work of the kingdom than to be tied up in marriage. That makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? We don't want to accept a statement like this, do we? It seems radical. It seems weird. I mean, you don't go around saying stuff like this in our society. To be honest with you, I'm kind of uncomfortable preaching it. It just seems so countercultural, so weird. And you know what? It is. It is weird. Most people in our society would see guys like Paul who is so devoting himself to Christ that he won't even get married. And you know what they would say about him? they say, that guy is weird. But listen, that's the difference between most Christians today, I think, and the Christians of the early church. The Christians of the early church, they were unique. They were weird. They weren't concerned with fitting in with society. If anything, they understood that they were supposed to be distinct from it. And and the reason why was because they understood that they held a completely different set of values than the world did. And that's how they lived. Like, guys, you understand? They believed that Jesus was actually coming back to bring about a whole new order to things, and they actually lived according to that expectation. Their faith wasn't a game to them. They weren't going to church in order to live up to some kind of cultural expectation. No, they believed that Jesus would return soon to usher in the kingdom of heaven, and so they lived that way. And and this had a dramatic impact on the way that they thought about life. It had a dramatic impact on what they thought was important in life. Essentially, they lived for the gospel 
They believed that everything else was soon passing away, and so they fixed all of their attention on the gospel of Christ. And I think if we're being honest with ourselves, most of us don't live this way. Yeah, we'd say that Jesus is coming back, but I doubt that anyone in here really thinks it's going to happen tomorrow. And in this respect, we're really very much like the world. We go, I'm quoting 1 Peter here, or 2 Peter. And we, we go, come on, where's the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing just as they were from the beginning of creation. We go, it's been 2,000 years already. He's probably not coming back anytime soon. And the result of this is that not only are we spiritually lethargic, thinking that we have all the time in the world to advance Christ's gospel, but it also means that we have a very different value system from the early church. And I think the result of this is that we're often so out of touch with actual Christian values that we can't even understand the types of issues that Jesus was addressing in passages like this one. You see, we tend to idolize marriage. That's why we say this idea that someone might actually stay single for the rest of their life seems radical. It's because a lot of us think that someone could not possibly be happy apart from marriage. It's just assumed that singleness is misery and marriage is the preferred option. But this isn't what the Scripture says. Yes, the Scripture indicates that marriage can be a source of joy, but that's actually not the primary purpose of marriage. God is to be the source of your joy according to the Scriptures. And marriage in its original intent was designed as a vehicle for the advancement of His glory. According to the Scripture, it's possible for a person to be content outside of marriage simply by virtue of their relationship with Christ. In fact, I don't know if you realize this, but in just a couple of chapters, Jesus is going to point out that no one is going to be married in heaven. You realize that? Marriage isn't eternally permanent. It's actually very temporary. Believe it or not, you are going to spend the vast, vast, vast majority of your existence single. Does that depress you? If so, then I'd wager that you're probably seeking contentment in your spouse rather than in Christ. This is the problem. We idolize our marriages. We seek our satisfaction in that. And then we, so then when we think about divorce, the question that we want to ask is, do I have to stay married to someone who makes me unhappy? Understand, that was how the Pharisees thought about marriage. That's why they wanted to be able to divorce for any cause. They didn't want to have to be married to someone that made them unhappy. But this wasn't how Jesus viewed marriage at all. To him, one's commitment to God takes precedence even over marriage. So we look at this issue in terms of when am I allowed to get a divorce? This isn't how the early Christians were thinking about marriage at all. They believed that marriage was already in the midst of passing away. And so for them, the issue wasn't, so when do I get to divorce my wife? Rather, they're wondering, so now should I divorce my wife? Like, given what's going to happen at Jesus' return, given the short amount of time that we have until then, the urgency with which we must preach the gospel, the distraction that marriage brings to that mission, is that something I should do? Should I divorce my wife for the sake of Christ? That's what Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians 7. 
And we'll see that this is what Jesus was addressing, even in the exception clause when we take a closer look at this next week. The ones who are divorcing their wives under this exception, understand they weren't doing it because they wanted to. They were doing it because they thought they had to. They thought that divorce was the correct route to take spiritually. Now, I'll explain why this is so next week. But my point here is that Jesus did endorse this principle that the kingdom of heaven was more important than marriage. And it led people to ask the question, not, can I divorce my spouse? But must I? Should I? And I have to say that's a completely different way of looking at this issue than I think we're inclined to think about it. Isn't it? This is the problem. Jesus is on an entirely different wavelength. And so when we try to tune in to His instruction on marriage, all we get is static. His message seems confusing. It seems unclear. But it's not unclear. The problem is just that we're tuned to the wrong frequency. Like we're all seeing in black and white and Jesus is is seeing in color. That's the problem. We don't see the world the way Jesus does because we're so often so spiritually dull. And so we can't understand Him. Understand the only point at which Jesus' teaching on divorce is going to make any sense is when you allow your new identity in Christ to so so shape your core principles and values that they're fundamentally transformed. A lot of Christians I don't think ever get there. They just kind of pave over their old value system with new facts, new data. They don't experience a total overhaul at the foundational level that leads them to think Christ's thoughts after Him. So they're often confused. And that's exactly what we need to do here. Before we even get into a discussion of the exception clause, we have to pivot away from this idea that marriage is a vehicle designed for our personal happiness and instead begin to view it as a vehicle for the glory of God. That's the way Jesus was looking at marriage, divorce, and and remarriage. That's the way the early church was looking at this issue. And that's how you and I need to think about it as well. And with that, hopefully, you can understand why I'm saying we have to take a week to read this passage in context before we get into the exception clause. This idea that it is better for the Christian to be single than to be married, and even this idea that's tied to it, this idea that marriage is already passing away and that we'll all be single when we get to heaven, these aren't ideas that we like to think about or talk about, but they're utterly revolutionary. They'll change the way you look at divorce, obviously. That's part of the reason why we're pausing to reflect on these points. But understand, they won't only affect that. If you're single, they'll change the way you look at dating. Who you choose to marry, if you do marry, will be dramatically affected by these concepts. If you are married, they'll transform your marriage too. And not for the worse, by the way. As paradoxical as it sounds, in spite of the fact of, kind of what, we, what we hear in Hollywood, uh, your marriage actually will only improve once you realize that your spouse is not your eternal soulmate. You'll have a healthier, happier marriage once you realize that your spouse is not the chief source of your contentment. In fact, believe it or not, depending on your relationship with Christ, I think it's possible that these principles are so radical once you understand them that they can actually revolutionize your relationship with Christ at a personal level. Completely different set of priorities. So how does this all work? How can we, how can we, how does this this concept really kind of change all these different things? That's what we're going to talk about 
tonight at 6 o'clock. I'd invite you to come back for that discussion. Again, that's where I'll balance out some of what I'm saying here this morning. So if you're wondering what that balance is, come back for that discussion tonight at 6. And of course, I'd invite, I'd invite you to come back for part 2 of this message next week when I finally get to the exception clause and ask, so what does Jesus mean when he says, except for immorality? I think it should be very eye-opening and I think very clarifying. I'll tell you myself, as I've worked through this issue, um, has answered a lot of questions. And again, even this principle we're talking about this week, as within this week, has already had an impact uh, on my life spiritually. So um, we'll talk about this next week. Of course, I'll explain the elders' uh, position on marriage in that message as well. So I'd invite you to be, for, be here for that. In the meantime, let's close with prayer.